It's so good to be with you on this Lord's Day, and I mean that with all of my heart. It is so good to be singing songs with you and be gathered with God's people. We have already heard uh, this morning in our time of confession uh, that our God is the master of history, and in his providence, the uh, North won the Civil War, thankfully, And on April 9th, 1865, General uh, Robert E. Lee was given the opportunity to speak to his defeated and surrendered army. And part of what he said to them uh, was this. He said, uh, by the terms of the agreement, officers and men can return to their homes and remain you will take with you the satisfaction that proceeds from a consciousness of duty faithfully performed. And I earnestly pray that a merciful God will extend to you his blessings and protection. At the end of a civil war, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, it is difficult to go home and be neighborly with the men, if you lived along a border state, that you were just trying to kill in battle. But that is what happened. It is difficult to bring unity after a civil war. That is our situation in 2 Samuel chapter 19. There was a civil war in Israel. We could call it a coup, a civil war, whatever you want to call it. The son of the king had a greater army than the king. The king, David, has been displaced. And there was this great battle in the forest And the smaller outnumbered army of that battle won King David's men, defeated Absalom's men. And so it is left to King David to try to put the nation back together. After men have been trying to kill one another. Because these men had allegiance to this king, to Absalom. That was the majority of the men in in households. But there was a minority that had allegiance to David and him as king. And that army beat this army. How do we put it all back together? How does David unify the nation of Israel? We have in today's sermon two kings' strategies for unity. The first one is King David's strategy, and then we will briefly look at King Jesus' strategy for unity. But I have just summarized, in case you're visiting with us or you forgot what has been going on, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, a war has just happened, and Absalom, the fake king, if you will, but the one who had taken up residence in the palace at Jerusalem, is dead. So with that, let's turn our attention to our Bibles 2 Samuel chapter 9, 19. We're having trouble with chapters today. 2 Samuel 19 and verse 9. It says, Throughout the tribes of Israel, 
The people were arguing with each other, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. You see, what's going on in here, they're reminding themselves about years ago when they actually looked to David. He was the one that remembered us, delivered us from the Philistines. Remember that? Then they go on and they say, but now he has fled the country. He's fled. I, I think we're, the reader is supposed to understand here, he has been somewhat cowardly and weak. He has fled because of Absalom. And Absalom, whom we, we see their, their, their allegiance here, we anointed to rule over us. God didn't anoint him, but the people anointed Absalom to rule over us. He has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So we have this dialogue going on in verses 9 through 10 about, hey, we probably need to get on on the side of King David and, and go with him back and show support as he goes back to Jerusalem and takes up residence in the king's palace. Now, verses 9 and 10 are describing Israel But you have to understand that sometimes when the Old Testament uses the word Israel, it is not referring to the entirety of Israel, but it is referring to 10 tribes of Israel or the northern tribes. So that's what we have going on down, uh, we have in verses 9 and 10. So we are not referring to the entire country, but we are referring to the 10 tribes or the northern tribes of Israel. Then look at verse 11. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Ask the elders of Judah. So here, for those of you that aren't familiar, Israel is divided into two categories of people, Israel and Judah. So Judah is this second category. And so David is speaking to them. David sent this message to them. Ask the elders of Judah, verse 11. Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king and his quarters. So let me paraphrase that. What David is saying is, hey, don't let Israel, don't let those tribes be the ones who are going to be leading the parade as I head back to the palace. Judah, you need to be a part of this as well. Why? Look at verse 12. You are my brothers. David is from the tribe of Judah, my own flesh and blood. So why should you Be the last to bring back the king. Verse 13, and say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. Whoa, did you catch that? So his right-hand man, Joab, who has been his general has just been fired. And he has made Robert E. Lee his general. That is crazy. The man who was leading the fight against David's men, Amasa, David has just made general. Now it didn't help Joab's cause. Those of you that are here last week, Was Joab an obedient soldier? David said, hey, here's how I want you to deal with Absalom. I want you to be gentle. And he didn't exactly do that when he put three spears into his body. So that may be part of the reason that he has replaced 
Joab. But it is extraordinary that David has made Amasa general of his army. Verse 14, he won over the hearts, who? David won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man. They sent word to the king, return you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. So we see what David is doing to try to put this nation back together after a war, after a battle in, in the forest. This forest where the reader knows very clearly that God, his providence, is the one who determined the outcome of the minority army, the smaller army, to defeat the greater army. David has now just made the leader of that army, the overall leader of Israel. This is part of his strategy for unity. One commentator says this, David exhibits a flash of that magnanimity which marked him at his best. That's a big word, magnanimity. It means that David stayed away from pettiness, from something like, you don't do that, you don't make him your general. No, I'm going to. David displayed tremendous generosity toward the other side in the midst of a very difficult time in trouble. What he has done here essentially is he is extending grace to Amasa and he has done this in such a way not just for that individual but to bring peace and unity to the people of God, to the ancient nation of Israel. This is all about unity and David putting the nation back together. We're in the middle of verse 15. Let's come back to the text. So now the men of Judah... The men from the south had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. So he has been where, in many ways, he should not have been, although he was safe. So there's some nuance here. In other words, David should have been in the palace. He should have been ruling and reigning, but he's been on the run, and he's finally coming back. And who shows up? Verse 16, Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim. He hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Uh, anybody remember this dude? So for those of you that don't remember this dude or you weren't here, Shimei. So David, as he is fleeing, he has a long journey, a 21-mile journey. And Shimei, during much of that journey, was pelting David with stones. He was throwing dirt and sand at him. This kind of behavior and animosity toward an enemy continues in the Middle East to this day. Shimei was doing this as David was leaving and fleeing. David had his armed warriors all around him who were ready to defend David, but David said, no, allow him to continue. Even though this man was falsely accusing David and cursing at him and cussing at him, David allowed it to continue because he viewed what this man, Shimei, was doing as discipline from God. So this guy shows up. Verse 17, with him were a thousand Benjamites along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed 
to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king. Now as he falls there, the reader should know, if you know the Torah, you know the law, he should be killed for what he has done to the king previously. That is the punishment. And so he falls down on the ground and he says, may my Lord not hold me guilty. What is he guilty of? Well, the Torah, the law, the Old Testament says that if you curse or go after the king or God's ruler, you are to be executed. So he knows that. Everyone knows that. May my Lord not hold, may my Lord not hold me guilty. Verse 19, do not, remem- do not remember how your servant did wrong on, that, on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole of the house of Joseph. So this refers, this is another name for the, for the northern kingdom, for the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes. I am here as the first of the whole of the house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. So, so he's playing his part here. Abishai, he, he, this is the guy who, you know, he's got his weapon on him all the time. And he is, is ready to fire. You remember what he wanted to do when, when Shimei was throwing the dirt and stones at him? Anybody? He wanted to lop his head off. Like, that's what he wanted to do. You don't throw stones at the king, the anointed king. Let me go lop his head off. That's what he asked when David was fleeing Jerusalem. And David then said no. So here, he reduces his request. Doesn't say lop his head off. Can I just put him to death? Look at David's response, verse 22. What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? David is saying he has nothing in common with the man who wants to defend him, but the man who is repenting, David, is identifying with. He continues, verse 22. This day, David says, You have become my adversaries. The men who are trying to protect David, you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? This is a time for reunion is what David is saying. I'm paraphrasing, I'm adding here. This is a time for reunification. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? No! That's how the reader is to read this. Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? And then verse 23, so the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. How is David putting the kingdom back together? How is he unifying them? He is extending grace. He has extended grace to Amasa in order to bring unity to the people. He has extended grace to Shimei And he has been critical of those who want to execute justice, capital justice, which was deserved according to the law. David is critical in distancing himself from that perspective in order to unify the people. Now, we've already covered verses 24 through 30 a few weeks ago. 
with Mephibosheth, so we're going to skip over that, and we're going to come to the third figure that we're going to hit in this sermon. Uh, and that third figure is Barsiai, verse 31. So Barsiai the Gileadite also came down from Ragalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years of age. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I will provide for you. Let me paraphrase that a little bit. So this is an incredibly wealthy man who was very supportive of David when he was in trouble. And David knows he has lived a good life. He's incredibly wealthy. He loves God. But he hasn't been living in the palace. He hasn't been eating at the king's table. So what David is saying here is, hey, I I want you to come and, and, and live the very best life that can be lived in Israel. I want you to be a part of the palace life. I want you to eat at my table. This is what he's saying to his friend. Verse 34, but Barzillai answered the king, how many more years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I'm now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is good and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of men and women singers? No hearing aids back then. (laughs) I can't enjoy the music. I can't enjoy the wine. I can't enjoy the food. That's what he's saying, paraphrasing it. Continuing on in the text. Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance. But why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return, that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him whatever pleases you. So here, this guy, Barcia, I like him. He's saying, hey, I appreciate the offer. But let, send this younger guy in my place and, and treat him as though he were me. Verse 38, the king said, King Kimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him whatever pleases you and anything you desire from me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Barsiai and gave him his blessing and Barsiai returned to his home. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. So David is extending grace to bring about unity of a people that were fighting one another in battle and killing one another. He has extended grace. We've looked at these three individuals And it has impacted me as I've been praying over and reading this text this week that these first two fit under that category. These first two individuals fit under that category. If we go back a couple sermons, we we talked about people that uh, that, that are naturally easy for us to love and then there are people that are unnatural and very difficult for us to love. These first two people fit in that category, incredibly difficult to love. 
In fact, uh, they're more like people that should be put in jail or, or executed. But he has shown love and forgiveness and even put Amasa in a position of power and authority to bring unity to the kingdom. But we not only should love those that are unnatural for us to love, but we should also love those who we love to love. And Barcia is one of those. David is extending grace to everyone to bring about unity in his kingdom. So, how does this relate to you and to me? Well, it can relate in many ways, and I hope you're already thinking of some of them yourself. But the theme of unity is a massive theme in the Bible, and it is a massive theme of Jesus as well. And so, I want to turn from 2 Samuel 19, where David has extended grace, and to look at how Jesus prays for unity for you and for me. We're just going to turn in the screen. You can turn your Bibles if you want to, but I'm going to have this on the screen, John 17. What has happened in John 17 is Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he has this really lengthy prayer referred to as the high priestly prayer. And most of this prayer, up until this point, Jesus has been praying for the 11, not the 12. One of them was a betrayer. He's gone, Judas. So he's praying for the 11 apostles. But then his prayer shifts in 17 and chapter 17 and verse 20. His prayer shifts and says, my prayer is not for them alone. The them here are the 11 apostles. And guess who Jesus now prays for? He prays for you and me. He prays for every generation of Christian who would believe the apostolic gospel. His prayer shifts from praying for the 11 to praying for every believer that will believe the same gospel that those 11 believed. Look at his prayer for you and for me. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. His prayer for his church, that is for Christ's followers, is that we would be one. That we would think of ourselves more as a collective whole than as individuals. Is that easy for Americans? Say no. His prayer is that we would think of ourselves as one whole and not primarily think of myself. This is as Jesus is going to the cross. He doesn't use the word unity, but he is praying for unity. A dictionary definition of unity. Oneness of mind, feeling, etc., as among a number of persons, concord, harmony, or agreement. He's praying that his followers would be one. Well, what would we be one in? Well, we would be one in allegiance to the one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, that's what he starts with, one God. So as we think about a basis for unity, for being one, for, for you and I actually fulfilling Jesus' prayer that we be one, I would like to suggest that unity is based 
on a common doctrinal agreement on who God is. He's one. Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one. The other basis I would like to suggest for this unity is the gospel. That we are unified in the gospel. That is, that Christ died. The historical, literal Jesus, he lived, he died, he rose on the third day. He died as our sin substitute to redeem the world. Do you believe in the one God? Do you believe in the gospel? If you do, regardless of your tradition, regardless of your color, regardless of being young or old, regardless of being male or female, Jesus' prayer is for us to be one. This is what he is praying as he goes to the cross. He doesn't use the word unity He's describing unity, but he uses the word one. The Greek word in two letters is the word hain. Its definition is a single thing. In contrast to the parts of which a whole is made up. Jesus is praying, I don't need to be too sophisticated here, that we would be one. <laughs> one. One. This is Jesus' prayer for the generations of the church, the post-apostolic generations of the church, that we would be one. Jesus prays for unity among Christians, and then Jesus models it, and he describes unity as he continues his prayer he says to God in his prayer, now just an aside here, in ancient times, people always read out loud. I don't know if you knew that, but it is a new thing in the history of the world for people to read silently. That's fairly recent. People would read aloud. If they were at home, in their room, alone, they would read aloud. And they would pray aloud also. Jesus would have been praying this prayer aloud but there are details in the prayer that, that we don't have time to get into today that the 11 apostles were listening to him pray. So he's alone praying aloud and they're listening to him pray. And he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He is speaking about his unity and his oneness with the Father here as he is praying he says, may they also, so that they here is you and me in every generation, post-apostolic generations, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is modeling his relationship with the Father, the closeness of God the Father and God the Son. They are one, absolutely one. There is only one God that we worship, Father and Son and Spirit as well. The Spirit isn't mentioned in this text, just the Father and the Son. That is the model and basis for you and I to be in us, the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The world is going to believe the gospel. In part, Jesus is praying because we are one. Unity. This is a huge thing.
and Jesus and the Father model unity by their oneness. And we could extend it to say that the Father and the Son and the Spirit model unity by their relationships as one God, three persons and one God. This is quite a model. I don't know when you have seen or experienced Christian unity um, in your life. I have experienced it a lot, um, even this morning, praying with folks in my office. But I want to share a brief story with you. Of um, I, I, I've told you many of the best sermons I've ever heard, like, unfortunately, weren't sermons. They were people living out the gospel, living out their life, and living out unity. And when I was a college student, um, I would drive every summer. I, I lived with my dad in the summer in Dallas and went to college in Santa Barbara. And I would drive to and fro uh, at the beginning, at the end of the school year, and drive back at the beginning of the school year. And I would just sleep in the back of my truck with all of my dorm room belongings. And I have a lot of sweet memories from that. And one particular year, uh, I think this would have been around 1989, summer of 1989, I was driving, and I was in New Mexico. And this was, uh, I even have one right here, isn't this? I, I don't like this, but I have one right here. Remember, it was before these things, you know? And it was a Sunday morning, and I woke up, and I wanted to go to church. And so we didn't have these things, and so you had to, like, find a sign or the yellow pages. You remember that? To, like, go to church. So it's a Sunday morning. I wake up in the back of my truck, I try to make myself look presentable, and I uh, go to this church in a small town in New Mexico. It was kind of like, the town was kind of like Colfax, small town. And I am in there worshiping, and it's a small church, smaller even than this, and, uh, and somebody comes up to me after the service, and they're like, who are you? <laughs> like, they knew I wasn't from there. And I told them who I was, and I'm just a college student, I'm on my way to Dallas, and I was like, kind of like shaking their heads and like, oh, it's great to meet you. And you know what they did? They invited me to their home for lunch. And here I am in a small town in, Mex in Mex New Mexico, not Mexico, in New Mexico. I'm in a small town in New Mexico at a family's intimate lunch after church as a 19-year-old. I was there because of their love for Jesus and their hospitality and their unity uh, that I was part of their family, the family of God. That is one of the best sermons I've ever heard on unity. It wasn't a sermon. It was a family inviting a young man to lunch. And I felt like I was part of a global community of people who put aside petty things and loved those from outside their community and their town. I felt like uh, we were one. <laughs> we were one. I felt like it so much as I was praying and reading over this text this week, I thought of them. I, I don't know their names. I don't even remember the name of the town. But I thought of them this week as I was preparing this message. Some family somewhere in New Mexico in the summer of 1989. Jesus in the New Testament makes a big deal about unity. 
and its opposite. It makes a big deal about the opposite of unity, division. Look with me on the screen at Titus 3. It says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Let me read that again. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. That is very strong language for the New Testament. We do not read sentences like that very often in the New Testament. For you and I to have nothing to do with someone. Jesus cares very much for unity, and he despises disunity. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. My paraphrase, the way I understand this, why does it say he is self-condemned? Because we are going to feel bad if we actually do this. Our feelings are not often reliable. I'm going to feel like I should never do what the Word of God says here. That's how I'm going to feel if I do this. But my feelings, although they're genuine, they're not reliable. So the Word of God is telling me that person is self-condemned. It's not me condemning him. He's been divisive. She's been divisive. If you've warned them three times, don't have anything to do with them. Jesus cares very much about unity. He cares very much not only about our doctrine, but our lives. And I think in churches like ours, we sometimes overemphasize the doctrine and not life. The Bible says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Titus is saying, you know, you could, you could line up with all the orthodox statements, but you're divisive. And all the orthodox doctrinal points you line up, but you're divisive. You are to be put away. The New Testament does this also when it comes to caring for a family member who's in need, of need, in need of food or shelter or clothing. The same kind of strong language is there. If you don't care for a family member in need, God says through his spirit, through his word, that you are worse than an unbeliever. Unbelievers, according to the New Testament, receive God's wrath and eternal punishment, hell. So the Bible says if you don't care for a family member in need, you are worse than an unbeliever. That's not unity. That's caring for a family member in need. What I'm trying to draw out here out of Titus is the importance of our lives, of how we live, and specifically how important unity is. David extended grace, radical grace, to enemies. Jesus prays for unity as he's going to the cross. He models it. He describes the model of it by his relationship with the Father, that just as he and the Father are one, we as Christ followers are to be one. So this is where preaching is difficult. What should you do? How should you respond to this message? Perhaps the Spirit has already spoken to you and you know a way internally he's spoken to you and you know how to respond. But let me give you a picture of what the church in Colossae was to look like as far as unity goes. Unity is seen when people who are very different 
who would not ordinarily be at your table in your home or at your dinner table at your home because of Jesus. This is when unity is most clearly seen. You can have it in any setting, in every setting, but it's most clearly seen in Colossae this way. Here, that means the church, the local church here, there is not Greek and Jew. In other words, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. There's not circumcised and uncircumcised. We used to have this old covenant where everyone had to be circumcised. That has been done away with. Those laws are, are, those ceremonies and ceremonial laws are, are gone. And so we don't have in the church people that we look down upon who are uncircumcised. We don't have that. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free. So these are the categories of the, the lowest economic classes in society and the free representing the higher classes. We don't have that. But Christ is all and in all. We are one. This is what the church in Colossae was to look like. It's an extraordinary picture. So I have found in my own life, when I am proximate to people who love Jesus, who are very different than me, that God gets glory and we just see the beauty of unity. I see it when I'm with people like me as well, but I see it especially when I'm vulnerable or when someone else prompts me to be with someone who's very different than me, but who is a believer. Some months ago, I got a letter here at the church from a man who I didn't know what he looked like or anything. Uh, I got a letter from him months ago. He's an inmate at San Quentin Prison. And we started corresponding. And then I went through the process of getting, you know, filling out all the paperwork to go and visit him at San Quentin. And I went and visited him a few weeks ago. And I don't have time to go into all of the details, but suffice it to say that I let, this man is a strong believer. He took the time to write a pastor. And then as we started to communicate, it was very clear that he would love to meet with me and for me to pray with him. But the reality of the matter is I saw someone who's living in this radically different environment. I felt like I was in a different country driving 100 miles that way and sitting with him a few feet apart and I saw a man who's in two different Bible study groups, who's writing and praying and doing all of these things to better his life and to glorify God in the setting that he's in. And I came away just massively encouraged myself about the joy that this guy has found in recent years. It hasn't always been like that, but in recent years, in Christ, in prison. And there is a unity now among us, among he and I, that I didn't have prior to that. He reached out to me. Jesus prayed for us to be one. One commentator says this on that passage in Titus. He says, differences to be sure remain in the Christian community, but not in such a way as to be barriers to fellowship. To the extent that Christians do permit them to be barriers, they are acting out of character. We are out of character. We are out of Christ's will when we are divisive, not longing to be one, to be unified. 
It is difficult to know precisely as a preacher how you should respond uh, to this message. But I believe you should and I should. Let's bow our heads together and ask for God's help to know how to respond. Lord, we are sometimes blind to things that are in your word. Uh, Many people who have been around churches like ours, we are kind of known for fidelity to the word and doctrine, and, and that is good, and that should not change, but we sometimes neglect our own lives and even what your word says about the importance of how we live. And we have seen today from Jesus' prayer and from David's actions the importance of unity, of being one, and of being radically gracious to people, of being proximate to people that are unlike us, even a general who was recently trying to kill your men to make him your, your general, your right-hand man. What an extraordinary thing David did. Lord, I don't know what you would have for each of us to do, but your spirit will work in and among us, and I pray especially for myself that you would continue to open my eyes to the importance of fulfilling the prayer that Jesus prayed, that we would be one. I pray in his name. Amen.